This is a fascinating conversation I had with Nobel Peace Prize nominee Leon Kaluahao Siu, the Minister of Foreign Affairs for the Hawaiian Kingdom. Mr. Siu's activism I find incredibly intriguing in that nations such as Hawaii, Okinawa, and other nations that uh, have since become part of larger colonial empires oftentimes did not accede to the treaties or annexations that led to them coming under control of colonial powers. So Mr. Siu's work at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for the Hawaiian Kingdom is in large part to empower the Hawaiian people to recognize that they still should control their own government, their own territory, and their own land. It is a way to stand up to the hegemonic concept of Hawaii as a state because the people of Hawaii never agreed to become one. I talked to Mr. Siu today about the protests on Manokea, the incidents involving the construction of a telescope on Hawaiian territory that many Native Hawaiians feel is sacred land. The conversation is divided into two parts. In part one, we will talk to Mr. Siu about the history of colonialism and imperialism in Hawaii and how Hawaiians have never agreed to or been asked if they should become part of the United States. This was a matter done by force by a small group of capitalists in collaboration with a hostile US government. In part two, I'll talk to Mr. Siu about the philosophy behind the protests at Maunokea and some activists and ways of understanding Hawaii indigenous peoples groups, and different ways of thinking between the scientific and the sacred that I believe are critical for saving the world in a time of rapacious capitalism that works for the few and not the many at the expense of destroying the earth and the resources it contains. If you like what we're doing, please feel free to reach out. You can always get in touch with me at matt at asiaarttours.com. That's our email. You can check out the tours that we offer in places like Okinawa, Taiwan, and hopefully in the future, Hawaii, that try to connect people to indigenous groups so they can get the true story of these nations and their cultures, not the commodified and sensationalist version. Here's our conversation with Mr. Siu. I hope you enjoy our chat. For more information on Hawaii, you can also listen to our chat with activist Rob Kajiwara. Hey.
Okay, so the Hawaiian Islands were, was united in 1810, finally united in 1810 by King Kamehameha the Great. Um, uh, previous to that, he had united all the islands except one, which held out until 1810. Um, and the idea uh, that he, he brought was that the islands would be united under his headship. During that 30, 40 years, um, Hawaii had been in contact with the West, uh, initially through Jack, Captain James Cook and British explorers, and then many, many others came through. And Kamehameha actually was overseeing uh, the beginning of international trade that uh, ran through Hawaii. And so he very quickly caught on to the fact that um, Hawaii was valuable to, uh, to the rest of the world. And, and he was very eager to learn about the rest of the world and how he might be able to protect his kingdom as well as uh, allow his kingdom to prosper in this situation. So he began to engage quite heavily with uh, the foreign traders that came in, uh, explorers and others. When he passed away, he had already started to modernize his country, a country that had a religious system that was steeped in you know, various gods and things like that. So about six months after he passed away, his son, King Kamehameha II, acted to uh, disavow himself from the ancient religious system and then kind of left a vacuum of what was to come. Uh, and six months later, the Christian missionaries from Boston arrived. So when they arrived, they had no idea what they were going to be meeting up with and had actually assumed that Kamehameha the Great was still alive, although he had passed nearly a year previous. Um, so they were expecting quite a um, confrontation, uh, you know, of religion and culture and things like that. Well, when they did arrive, they were very surprised to be greeted as um, the bearers of the new religion for the Hawaiian Islands. So Hawaii quickly uh, became converted into a Christian nation. And this was significant because if you know much about the doctrine of discovery, um, you know that the basis of it was that those nations that were not Christians were susceptible to being taken over by the Christian nations. So when King the III came into power, he declared Hawaii a Christian nation. So he took his absolute monarchy and they changed it uh, into a constitutional monarchy. So there was the executive branch, which was the monarchy, and the judicial branch and the legislative branch uh, sharing powers equally. So it was quite an advanced idea to have a constitutional monarchy. Not only that, uh, a couple of years later, seeing the colonialism going on in the Pacific, where other countries were you know, literally taking over many of the island nations, 
uh, Tahiti. And, and so he decided to press for uh, recognition as a sovereign state. Uh, so he sent emissaries in 1843, 1842, he sent them off, but they got to England and, and negotiated with the Queen of England and with representatives of the King of France. And what they did was they got England and France, after several months of talking this over, uh, to acknowledge Hawaii as a sovereign, independent state, uh, as an equal state to the other Christian nations of Europe. So Hawaii became the first non-European nation to be embraced as an equal among the other colonizing nations. He gained independence for Hawaii. That was 176 years ago. And so Hawaii has been an independent state ever since then, uh, recognized, fully recognized by all of the, the countries at that time who considered themselves sovereign and were part of what was loosely known as the family of nations. And this was basically a consortium of European and European-minded nations like America. Um, so Hawaii was a fully recognized sovereign state in, by, by the mid-19th um, century country uh, from the standpoint of being very progressive, uh, adopted lots of new ideas and things like that, and incorporated them into this Christian nation. So uh, Hawaii had outlawed slavery, um, meaning we didn't have slavery here. So any slave entering the Hawaiian Islands would be immediately set free. Uh, also, we had pioneered the idea of neutrality in the 1850s. Uh, so this was complete neutrality. We would, not, we, we would treat everyone equally, but not if they were going to war through our ports. Uh, so they would not be welcome in our ports if they were preparing for war. And then we were also a leader in the idea of equal status uh, among nations. So dispelling this the unequal treaties and things like that that was prevalent by the colonial nations and when they were making treaties, say, with countries who were supposedly sovereign countries like uh, Japan or China, uh, they still were bound by unequal treaties with these European countries. But the Hawaiian Kingdom basically said that this was not fair and this was not good and, and started to uh, insist that the treaties be equal in basis and, and set the example initially with Japan and China in, in a way forced the other countries to also enter into equal treaty relations with those countries. So in the 1850s, 1860s in particular, the Hawaiian sugar industry had a huge boost because of the uh, Civil War of the United States when the southern states withdrew from the northern states and took their sugar with them. Um, the northern states were left without a sugar, a source of sugar. So they turned to the Hawaiian Islands, which had a, uh, uh, which had a small sugar industry, but it, it grew exponentially as, as the north, northern states of the United States demanded more sugar. Uh, Hawaii provided more and more sugar. So the, the those that were owners of sugar plantations became these sugar barons. They really had a, a large uh, operation going, and they were supplying sugar for the United States um, and had gotten extremely wealthy and had ex exponentially expanded their production in the islands. When the Civil War ended, then slowly the southern sugar came back online, and so there was less need for Hawaiian sugar. 
and the prices reflected that. Hawaii being a foreign country was then subject, of course, to tariffs and duties and things like that that were uh, causing all kinds of price fluctuations that the Hawaii sugar planters uh, very much uh, were uh, at dismay about. So um, what they decided around the eight, uh, late 1870s, uh, they decided that it would be better if Hawaii were to become annexed to the United States. That would get rid of any tariffs and it would be a ready and open market for Hawaiian sugar. So they started to plot at that time. Around the same time, the United States began to eye the Hawaiian Islands as a very convenient area or place for a naval base, particularly Pearl Harbor. Eventually, in the late 1880s, these two interests uh, colluded and came up with this idea that it would be better for Hawaii to be annexed to the United States. The sugar planters would get their market for sugar and the United States would get a, a military base. So eventually this led to a uh, plot that hatched in 1893 when the um, sugar planters decided that they needed to really take, seize control of the country because the queen was being uh, very independent-minded and did not want to go along with any kind of ideas of annexation or of uh, any kind of subjugation to the United States. Uh, and in fact, the Hawaiian Islands was in friendly relations with the United States. By that time, we had about five treaties with the United States. We had treaties with 46 other nations of the world. Hawaii was uh, very much recognized as a, an equal among other states. So the, the, the queen opposed becoming annexed to the United States. So there was an actual action that took place in Hawaii where the queen um, uh, was uh, confronted by the landing of American troops in 1893 an American gunship offloaded 162 Marines and paraded down King Street in front of Iolani Palace and set up a bivouac in front of the, the palace with cannons and gatling guns and, and rifles pointed at the palace to intimidate the queen uh, to bring arms, uh, bring the United States arms into play. Meanwhile, the conspirators uh, the insurgents uh, announced that they were now taking over as their committee was now the provisional government for the Hawaiian Kingdom. So the Queen decided not to confront the invading force of the United States, uh, even though she could have easily defeated them with her army. But she also knew that that would provoke the United States uh, into warfare with the Hawaiian Kingdom, which she did not want and would ultimately be a terrible loss for the Hawaiian Kingdom. So she decided to petition the United States government to return her kingdom, that there was a big misunderstanding, that they had acted illegally by landing troops, and she expected them to abide by international law and acknowledge that they had acted wrongfully toward her country and her as the sovereign. Initially, it fell on deaf ears because the president of the United States at that time was one of those who supported the annexation of the Hawaiian Kingdom. But he uh, left office a couple of months after the incident in Hawaii happened. The new president, whose name is Grover Cleveland, 
uh, immediately suspected that there was something wrong with this uh, this uh, uh, this action in Hawaii, and so he uh, called for an investigation, withdrew the Treaty of Annexation from being considered in the U.S. Senate, and uh, and wanted to find out what was going on. The investigation lasted about five months, and then he received a report, which basically said that the United States had acted wrongfully in the taking of a, not only a sovereign country, but a friendly country. And so President Cleveland went to Congress and said the United States was obligated to return the Hawaiian Kingdom to its proper status as a sovereign state and return the, the original government to its place. And that's where it sat. So this is in December of 1893. Commitment was made to return the Hawaiian Kingdom, but no one acted on it from the United States. Four years later, when President Cleveland left office and President McKinley took over, McKinley was inclined to actually go ahead with the seizure of the Hawaiian Islands. So another treaty of annexation was negotiated and signed. Uh, the Senate did not ratify the, the treaty for a number of reasons, uh, mainly because the Hawaiian people were up in arms about it. They basically said there's no way that they would allow for their country to be annexed to the United States, that it was not the will of the people. Over about 90% of the people had signed a petition opposing annexation. So the United States Senate uh, essentially could not annex the Hawaiian kingdom. There was even a question as to whether they could have, even if they ratified the um, treaty. But nevertheless, they never ratified any treaty. And so the it, it seemed that the, the case had been dropped. However, a few months later, the Spanish-American War broke out, and McKinley saw the opportunity now to push for uh, uh, the use of the Hawaiian Islands, which they had been using for the last four or five years, uh, with the permission from the provisional government, uh, which had become the Republic of Hawaii. So the United States had already been using Pearl Harbor as a naval base, and now it was this excuse of the Spanish-American War in order to prosecute the war in against Spain in the Western Pacific, uh, namely the Philippines. The uh, United States decided that they would utilize the base at Pearl Harbor. And so that's how the United States got its foothold in the Hawaiian Islands. The war, the Spanish-American War, ended fairly quickly, but what ensued after was that the Filipinos had mistakenly thought that the United States had come to liberate them from the Spanish and only to learn that now they were to be a colony of the United States. So a protracted war took place uh, in which uh, up to half a million Filipinos died and about 5,000 U.S. troops died. A uh, base of operations that brought those troops from the United States continent uh, to the Philippines was through the Hawaiian Islands through Pearl Harbor. All of a sudden, the, the use of Hawaii as a military base became extremely important to the United States. So when the Spanish-American War ended, when the Filipino-American War ended, the United States simply never left the Hawaiian Islands. And to sort of cover their tracks, they passed a bogus bill in Congress called the Newlands Resolution, which purported to annex the Hawaiian Islands, only it was a, a treaty. So that's where things were. The, when the United States took over with uh, 
calling Hawaii a territory of the United States, uh, then a, a concerted effort took place to erase or to alter history and to erase the memory and to really squelch the culture of the Hawaiian people. English was, was the preferred language. In many areas, the Hawaiian language was banned, and in, in all areas, it was very much discouraged. Hawaiian culture was very much uh, ridiculed and, and set aside. Uh, so for many years, there was a concerted effort to, to Americanize. Uh, to denationalize the Hawaiians and to reprogram them as as Americans, and that pretty much worked uh, for about 60 years. And it wasn't until the 1970s when questions began to be raised as to what happened. In the meantime, Hawaii had been made a state of the United States in 1959, and so Hawaii had fully. Uh, integrated to the United States, or so it seemed. So what we began to find out in the 1970s is that is that we began to uncover the history that was never told to us, what I just talked to you about. This is this was, was not really talked about at all. But since the 1970s, we've learned a lot more. And that uh, knowledge of what really happened and who our people really were um, began to... Um, cause a uh, renaissance in our cultural, in an area of culture. So our language began to be taught again in our schools uh, to our children, and the language was rescued from the brink of extinction and is now alive and very well in the islands. Along with the language, all of the cultural practices and these types of uh, factors of, of society began to, to grow. But most of all, a national identity began to emerge as Hawaiians. We began to see ourselves as the proper stewards of this land and and the proper um, government of this land. So in, in 1993, the United States, under President Cleveland, the United States Congress, um, uh, issued an apology, and President Cleveland signed the apology into a law called Public Law 103-150 which we call the Apology Law. And in it, the United States apologized for its role in the initial overthrow of the Hawaiian Kingdom. And so we took that to mean that if the United States itself admits that what they did in 1893 was an unlawful act, then none of what they did since then would be lawful. And so we basically said that the Hawaiian Kingdom still exists. It was never extinguished by any U.S. laws that were passed uh, after the 1893 takeover of the Hawaiian Islands. Um, and so that this is what we have been operating on as a people, identifying ourselves as Hawaiian nationals uh, with the right and the obligation to restore our country as a sovereign state, the Hawaiian Kingdom, as it was in the 19th century. So that's where we are today. So coming up to Mauna Kea, over the years we have protested and we have made many, many um, sacrifices on the part of our people to call attention to the fact that Hawaii is not part of the United States and that actions to utilize our land or to misuse our land, our resources and, and our government and all that are actually acts of aggression by the United States. And, and so this is what we are... Um, faced with right now. 
So Maunakea is one of a long procession of incidents to assert the fact that the Hawaiian kingdom still exists and that the authority to make decisions such as building a telescope on Mauna Kea does not reside with the state of Hawaii, it resides with the Hawaiian kingdom and with the people of the Hawaiian kingdom. What we're seeing is that the people, our people, have begun to identify ourselves as the body politic of the Hawaiian kingdom. So we're an indigenous people, but we're also a nation made of many, many others who have come to live and be part of our, our nation. Uh, so this is a national issue as well as an indigenous issue. There is a beautiful and mysterious creature who lives in our forests and fields. The old stories call him the guardian of the forest. It's said that if you were lonely or lost or afraid, this guardian would find you and take you safely home. He's known as the Hawaiian Owl, the Pueo. Oh, 